This episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I imagine you might be like me. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you blink awake and the whole narrative of your life threatens to unravel. You spiral thinking about the choices and compromises you've made, all the things you wanted to do, engage the world, feel joy, purpose. You had big aspirations beyond just slogging through. These midnight doubts, they're way outside self-help territory. I'm all for green juice and journal keeping. They're great aids, but they don't offer answers. I'm talking about our deepest and most discomforting questions. What do our days amount to? Can we really heal? What's it even mean to be at peace? Some people have got it figured out, right? So I've set out to find them and to talk to them about their lives, to try to understand who they are and what they've discovered. But first, let me tell you how I started down this path. Because the point Mm. is not to go crazy, but to dismantle your mind. You could say I've always been a leap-first sort of person. It's only as I'm flailing through the air that my mind starts grasping. What brought me to the edge? Like the time I wound up at a German free love commune just two years after I'd gotten married. Or the time I spent at the Argentine outpost of a messianic cult banished to the kitchen with the other women while the men waited lustily for hot meals. These adventures, they were part of my job as a journalist. But it was more than that. It was a personal pursuit, not that I would admit that to myself. A therapist I saw a while back described my attitude as counterphobic. She said I raced towards rather than away from my fears. I waved this aside. It was just too uncomfortable to ask why, really, was I interviewing the dominatrix in the dental suite of a Los Angeles dungeon? I'm Catherine Rowland. I'm a public health researcher turned cultural journalist, and I've built a career around my skepticism of power, easy fixes, and people who profit from our pain. I've spent years trying to make sense of other people's motivations without ever really daring to look too closely at my own. So long as I was working on the story, I could be removed. But one day, grief thundered into my life. And the little fortress I had made of my doubt fell away. I was left standing there, raw and exposed, and hungry for answers. My instinct was that to get at them, I needed to go to the places on the edge. So I set out to meet people who pursue radical ends to make sense of our blinking life. People with big, bold, even unsettling ideas that challenge our notions of what it means to be human. People who take searching to the extreme. I mean, it can be a little unnerving, (laughs) you know, on your psyche. You start with seeking why you are separate from the whole, and then you end up finding your place in the whole. My own journey began with loss. Grief remakes who we are, and in it I found a desire to explore the nature of healing. 
And that led to my free fall into the world of plant medicine and psychedelics. That's this season, the people behind the psychedelic renaissance. From Sony Music Entertainment and something else, this is Seeking, a show about the questions that keep us up at night and the links we go in search of answers. I'm in this yurt in the woods in the Catskills. It's fall, leaves line the ground. The hour is late and keeps getting later as people come shuffling in. One dozen, two dozen, dragging blankets and pillows and yoga mats. I'm here for healing from a woman who refers to herself as a medicine carrier. In the past, I couldn't have said that with a straight face about a young white woman, but here we are. We've all come to participate in the ayahuasca ceremony she's leading. Ayahuasca is a psychoactive brew from South America. The name in Quechua translates roughly as spirit vine or rope of the dead. I've brought my own bedding along with this oversized black and white photo of me and my brother Benji. It's a great picture. We're sitting together shoulder to shoulder, heads thrown back, our mouths wide with toothy laughter. The theme of this gathering is the Day of the Dead. As people enter, they contribute to this big altar taking shape on the floor in the middle of the room. There's stones and feathers and flickering Guadalupe candles, locks of hair from once youthful heads, dried sprigs, reminders that nothing lasts forever. I contribute a little baggie with Benji's baby teeth and a prescription bottle filled with his ashes. I think my mother had been too taken with grief to consider the irony here when she gave me this portion of my brother. He'd taken a lethal dose of one of his meds just days after getting out of an inpatient program to help with bipolar disorder. On the first anniversary of his death, my mom, my husband, and I all went out for pizza. My brother had been a pizza connoisseur. On each visit, he'd researched the best slice in town, dragging me to pop-ups and grandma kitchens into this once-favored spot in North Brooklyn. We ordered what we think Benji would have ordered, and I slipped that hateful little bottle from my purse and sprinkled a pinch of his ashes all over the pie. It was after I told my therapist about crunching through the grit that she told me I needed something more than our weekly hour. I needed to reach beyond my waking mind. Which is how I find myself here, at this Day of the Dead ceremony prepared to take ayahuasca. I didn't know what I was getting into, only that I needed my life to change. The healer floats in. She sits down, flanked by musicians and assistants who will help ferry away the little buckets that are placed before us. 
Ayahuasca is a purgative. It often makes you puke, an act here referred to as getting well. The brew is typically made from boiling the Banisteriopsis copy vine with the leaves of the Psychadria viridis shrub. It's a concoction shamans figured out at least a thousand years ago. In the yurt in upstate New York, it's hard to not reel from the distance of not just continents, but history, tradition, meaning. We're a bunch of white-collared hipsters steeped in modern troubles. Is this just going to be an extreme retreat? In place of yoga, we cry and puke and shit our pants while we beckon to our inner child? But I take my cup. It's thick and bitter with a fleeting taste of chocolate that too soon becomes a salty urge to keep swallowing as it rumbles its way down to my belly. Then there's anticipation, rustling stillness. I sit quietly, suddenly very aware of my own breath. As my stomach gurgles, I recall the advice to never trust a fart. I try to focus on why I'm there, to shake my grief, to understand. But the jabbering of my mind seems so loud, so rude. And now, between that inner chatter and the rustling and the jewel tones swirling behind my eyelids, the thread starts to slip away. The music begins like the curl of a finger, a little crook in your mind. Gradually, the drums become insistent, the singing louder, a fever grips the room. Beside me, a man starts retching. Another woman begins to moan and convulse. Someone cries out that they're freezing, freezing. The room becomes its own chorus of sighing and heaving. I have visions of my brother Benji. Benji as incandescent, Benji as a seraph looking back for a moment before plunging into the stars. Benji with burning wings, the same umber hues as his hair. And then I'm plunged into a cavern of pain. The pain Benji must have felt when he chose to end his life. And then the pain of a million extinguished lives. He was every dead and dying child. He was every dead and dying man and woman for whom this world has ceased to be hospitable. A fire swept the earth, and he was just dust. I lurch up from my seat and grab for my pill bottle and Ziploc baggie and lunge out into the woods. It's pitch black. I throw myself onto the ground and begin clawing at the soil, wailing, praying, which is something I've never done before. I'm seized with this need to return my brother to the earth I need to plant his remains like a seed. The next day, and in the days and weeks and months that followed, I felt increasingly at peace. I no longer woke up gasping in the night. It was like all the named and unnamed dread, all the worn-out useless stories had been cleared away. Where once there had been despair, I found wonder, curiosity. I'd gone into the ceremony with so many reservations, not just about the plant and the trip it would take me on, but about the whole setup, 
the gathering of privilege in the woods. My whole life, I've been rewarded for my skepticism, to root around for what's fake or strictly self-serving or woo. But something changed, and I needed to know what that was. So I am, I am named after Shiva, and Shiva is the destroyer and resurrector. So is it I can crumble people, find out what's going on, and resurrect them, teach them to resurrect themselves. That's Carrie Henwood. She's become a mentor of mine. I don't sleep very much because the spirits sing to me and they talk a lot. I've thrown myself into learning all I can about plant medicine. As a journalist and as a seeker. I've studied and learned from different teachers. I've read ethnographic accounts and scientific studies. But it's been in Carrie that I've found the deepest understanding of how to move from grief to healing. In ceremonies with her, I've wept and raged until I thought there was nothing left. But then I returned to the room, and there she is sitting calm and upright, smiling with her bright blue eyes. For all the pain, we still have laughter. This Australian woman in her 60s spoke right to my heart. I first met her at a ceremony on the East Coast, but I've returned to her company many times over. She came to fascinate me and ignite questions I'd never even thought to ask can be a dangerous path. I mean, it's just truly not for the faint-hearted. It enhances your empathy, but it's also to crash your mind, dismantle your mind. Not long ago, I would have been surprised by my reverence for a woman who talks to spirits and travels with feathers and charms and a human bone. I, I have my uh, lama's femur bone. It's a flute. He was my teacher and they gave me his femur bone. We use it like if I needed help, I blow up his femur bone. I like, woohoo, <laughs> help. <laughs> I need some help. <laughs> but Carrie is both otherworldly and totally relatable. She has one foot in the astral plane and the other navigating car insurance and social media. She has students like me who adore her. Most of her clients are comfortably middle class. She's worked with the occasional millionaire. But being a shaman is not an easy path. There's no steady paycheck. After years of knowing Carrie, she's no less remarkable to me. How can someone be in the chaos of the modern world and still have an unswerving sense of purpose? And they say, go to the edge in your mind and you'll bump into God. That's after the break. The more you think about death, the more you live. I remember a master saying that to me when I was in my 20s. So you've got to learn to die so that you can live more. Carrie was in Australia during the pandemic. But now she's back at home in the desert outside of Palm Springs, California. During her absence, much of her medicinal garden withered. But she says there's still one San Pedro cactus rising tall and strong from the desert floor. I think of Carrie as a lot like that, a totem to our ability to survive in the face of relentless hardship. Carrie was raised in a household marked by extremes. 
Her grandmother was a Tahitian medicine woman. She taught me to listen, you know, to everything, to listen to everything that is around me. And that when, when I was a kid was more, you know, the environment, the sea, the movement of the palm trees. She had this knack for the otherworldly, but also knew that these talents were dangerous. You know, I just understood things. I would see dead people, not much anymore, but I did a lot when I was a kid. Carrie recalls going to church around 14, being drawn to people, seeing spirits around them, and relaying what she saw. And I would hold their hands and people would cry. And I, you know, like I never understood why, but I knew it was a good thing. Carrie's grandmother saw it as a gift to be nurtured, but she was the only one. Carrie attended Catholic school where anything considered remotely pagan was written off as evil. Her father was also Catholic and battled his own demons. It created enormous upheaval in the family constantly. Because you have this pagan and Catholic you know, very religious and very earth-based. A lot of alcohol to calm the savage beasts. Her mother had a calling as well, but was plagued by mental illness. Carrie says everyone in her family struggled to make sense of it. What was your mother like? Something went awry there, you know. A kind and generous woman in the external world. And then in the internal world, quite different. It was push-pull thing. I love you, hate you, go away kind of stuff. So you can't do that to children. When Carrie was 15, her mother took her life. When my mom passed, I found her in the morning on the kitchen floor. Actually, she, well, yeah, story there. She's suicidal. And then that same year. My mother and my grandmother died. My father threw me in the streets and I was a street person. Despite her early gifts, spirituality faded from Carrie's life. Cast out from her home and living on the streets of Sydney, Australia in the 1970s, she sold heroin to survive. For years, she lived on the margins. At some stage around 24, 23, I knew that I was dying, and I knew I, uh, I knew that I wasn't meant to die. And I remember going down the street, and there was this marketplace, and there was this classic-looking woman with a crystal ball. And she grabbed me, and she said, you need to sit down, I need to tell you something. I'm like, oh, this woman's lost her mind. So it, she sits me down, and she gave me her earring. And she said, your life is just about to change, that eventually I would go to America, that I would take the path of healing that my grandmother wanted me to do. I'm dying at this stage, right? But this is fate, right? And so fate starts to manifest herself. This is where Carrie's life starts to take a turn into territory that sounds fantastic. (laughs) I know, this is my life, welcome to it. The very idea of fate makes demands that most of us cannot answer to. But Carrie had this clear sense of destiny pulling her where she was meant to go. 
She got away from her haunts and moved to another part of Australia to try to get clean. Not long after this dramatic change, she meets a couple. They had these translucent eyes that they just didn't look like they were from this world. As Carrie remembers it, this couple sees something special in her. And then they help her get to Thailand to detox at a Buddhist temple. She says that there is plant medicine involved, but she doesn't remember what it was. Only that the violence of purging put her in touch with her emotions. She stayed on to train as a monk. She shared this with me over Zoom. Her manner was matter-of-fact, but I struggled to keep up with the pace of her experiences. How did that moment feel? I mean, so you go from being a street person in Australia and then suddenly you're a holy person or a holy aspirant in Chiang Mai. The chaos that I was feeling, like even the the psychosis, the anxiety, because you have a lot of anxiety when you're coming off drugs. I mean, that that's, that's why you took them. I took them because I didn't want to think or feel anymore. And now all of a sudden you tell me I have to think and feel. What came forward was pain, but Carrie didn't despair. There was something inside of me that my grandmother planted, and it was faith. I just, I just knew. I just knew that I was going to be okay. There are no half steps for Carrie. Go deep or go home, she tells me. And Carrie took up life as a monk. She shaved her head. She begged for alms on the streets. She took vows of silence. She lived in a cave. Eventually, life, or fate, started to direct her feet elsewhere. She went to Peru to study with indigenous plant medicine healers. There, she found the calling that would define the next three decades. She returned over and again to learn how to clear her mind, how to open her heart, and in the process has taken some pretty gnarly substances. This next bit of tape from Carrie was recorded when she was in her desert home. It sounds a bit different, but it's still the same woman. I was doing ayahuasca and doing deates and other medicines, actually, jitsawasi. A lot of these medicines don't come to the West because basically people would lose their minds It makes ayahuasca, again, look like kindergarten, some of these other ones. The same spiritual promise that her grandmother had seen in her was evident to the maestros in Peru. After many pilgrimages, she learned to steady her mind. It took more than a decade, but Carrie received a formal blessing to step into her role as a plant medicine healer. Come into the the West and start doing ceremonies, which... You know, that, that was a scary prospect. There is good reason to be nervous. To serve a psychedelic compound to a group of people is a huge responsibility. You have to be able to respond to all the emotions that are coming up, to attend to the needs of each individual while also ensuring the coherence of the group. It's an art form. A lot of situations that have happened in my life have driven my face into humility. (laughs) If you don't become humble in an experience, what is the point? As I talk to Carrie, I often have to suspend the part of my brain that's still looking for data and evidence. 
To this day, I listen to Carrie talk and I feel it, but it still challenges me, pushes my understanding. She has this sort of catchphrase that stuns me. How do you know you're not healed? Why do we have to see brokenness all the time? We might be healed. Take that one in. Why do we insist we need to be fixed? Carrie, for all the traumas she's endured, has come out on the other side with love, compassion, forgiveness for all her early wounds. This really resonates with me. In my own healing, I was seized with empathy for the depths of my brother's pain. But I'm still wrestling with what follows. How do I take the desperate prayer that came to me in the woods and infuse it into my everyday life? I used to do psychic readings, I don't know, for $5 or something. And that was the most asked question to me was what was my purpose and who am I? But for Carrie, that was never a question. I believe I have purpose. I think that I've only ever known my life to be of service. I don't think you have a life unless you have purpose. Can you imagine that certainty? What does that take? So much about Carrie's perspective and the details of her life are hard to wrap your head around. And yet, her story is not that far-fetched in the plant medicine world. Don't get me wrong, Carrie is unique. But the healers I know, who I've found guidance in and befriended, all of their tales seem incredible. It's a world where the incredible is kind of the norm. And you could say that my road here has also been kind of the norm. I came to plant medicine and psychedelics the way most people have to. I talked to friends, I tapped whisper networks, and sat in secret ceremonies with other Westerners who, like me, were trying to access a form of healing that's otherwise been off limits. But all of that is changing. Who serves plant medicine and who takes psychedelics? We're entering a wild new era. That's after the break. When I take in the sweep of Carrie's life, my thoughts return to that lone cactus, pushing its way up in her desert garden, growing despite the odds. For Carrie, there's been trauma, disease, poverty. She's pushed herself in the name of spiritual fitness just so that she can better help others. Because until recently, if you wanted to serve plant medicine, that's what you did. It's right there in the job description. But these expectations are shifting. The psychedelic underground has come roaring into the mainstream. Laws are being rewritten. New pharmaceuticals are in the pipeline. Therapists are training to give psychedelics to their patients. They went underground for decades, but now they are back, and they're not just for the counterculture anymore. Some doctors are calling it a breakthrough. Aaron Rodgers shared a psychedelic experience that he says gave him a different perspective on life, love, and football. More than 80% who were given the psychedelic treatment drastically reduced their drinking. MDMA has shown promise in treating PTSD. It was one of the most life-changing experiences I have ever had. 
Carrie isn't sure what to make of this altered landscape. On the one side, she thinks that more people using psychedelics could bring about the revolutions we all need. More love, more compassion, greater reverence for the earth. She's hopeful about the prospect of decriminalization. She's certainly tired of her stashes getting confiscated and destroyed at the border. But on the other hand, she's worried that these new healers might not be up to the task of shepherding our transformation. And the idea of turning psychedelics into prescription drugs? Oh, I feel sick. (laughs) It's the Western mentality, right, is to drive corporate into it and make money and synthesize. You can't synthesize magic and you can't synthesize spirit like that. You, You just can't. According to Carrie, you can't. You'll get high, but you won't heal your soul. But a new industry is trying to figure out how psychedelics can fix the mental health epidemic. I have my reservations about losing what's sacred. But then my thoughts travel to the question of whether my brother could have benefited. If psychedelics weren't stigmatized and scheduled drugs, could he have found the healing he needed? The popularity with plant medicine is, uh, yeah, as you know, is off the charts. Is it a good, is it a bad thing? I think the jury's out at the moment to see where we land. This season on Seeking, we're going deep into this question. I've been investigating the shifting landscape of psychedelics as a journalist and as a seeker. I don't have Carrie's certainty, I don't believe in destiny, and I don't know if psychedelics are going to change the world for the better. But I want to believe they can. This show is about the questions that keep us up at night. Questions about life and death and pleasure and purpose. We'll profile people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. From scientists who believe that a good death can help us to understand what makes for a good life, to tech investors who are on a quest for immortality. We'll travel to Peru to meet a Shipibo healer and his apprentices, and to a church in Florida that preaches perpetual life. But up first, we're diving through the portal of psychedelics to uncover what the Renaissance and mind-altering compounds means for healing. For the next seven episodes, we'll meet with underground shamans, above-ground therapists, venture capitalists and drug developers to explore what today's psychedelic fervor presents for not only our psyches, but also our communities, economies, and the world's traditions. To start, we're traveling to the English countryside to meet the 79-year-old Countess of Weems and March, better known as the Queen of LSD. Seeking is written and reported by me, Catherine Rowland. Our producers are Hamza Umerji, Rob Dozier, and Lily Thompson. Editing by Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Our executive producers are Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing by Sam Baer. Thanks to our legal team, Rachel Goldberg and Allison Sherry. Special thanks to Tom Koenig and Steve Ackerman. 